Christy Zia has worked as production designer, art director, and or director on Revolutionary Road, Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, and countless other films. Christy grew up listening to her parents' jazz collection, soaking up the Revolutionary Road-style atmosphere of her parents' cocktail parties, and being inspired by the stylish album covers of those recordings. Christy still finds inspiration in not only jazz music, but the individuality of the musicians who play it. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Christy and I met in South America while we were working on the Silver Spirit cruise ship, I playing concerts and she lecturing, and took the opportunity to talk about her multifaceted career and her continuing fascination with jazz. My father had an incredible collection of uh, jazz recordings. Um, I guess that was just something that he loved to listen to. And so from a very early age, I was listening to Stan Kenton, Count Basie, Frank Sinatra, um, and I would pick these records out of the collection more or less because of the covers, because I thought they yeah. were pretty, they were cool. Um, and I would take them out and put them in. There were 33 RPM records, and I'd play them. And inevitably, um, I would do... <laughs> I think about it now, it makes me laugh, but I would run figure eights around the living room. Uh, I don't know why I thought that was uh, the way to appreciate this music, but <laughs> I... <laughs> I love this. So this is when you were a little kid? Yeah. Or no, this was last week. Yeah, no. last week. <laughs> In fact, they still, they still watch me do it. <laughs> No, this was when you were you when you were really really young, probably four or five. Um, and my my mother uh, and my father both listened to this music all the time when they had friends over for drinks, which was very much in the Revolutionary Road kind of world of you know martinis oh, yeah. and the whole nine yards. Uh, they'd put on this music, and um, uh, it you know Woody Herman. Um, I mean, it was just constant jazz. That's, that's what it was. never thought about this to just this degree, but I love you bringing up the covers because the way they made covers in those days, speaking of Revolutionary Road, it was all a mood setter. You, It was a beautiful woman who was not playing on the CD or on the album at the time, but it really, it to me, it invited you into that world. Talk about that because that's very different from what they're doing with CD covers now. It's just interesting. I don't have it formed, but you as as an art person, speak to that. You know what I'm saying. I do, you're smiling. I do, I do, I do. No, I, it just reminded me of, of just the, well, the visuals in general, they would either be of, of, of very sultry women, you know, leaning up against doorways, 
or they would be really beautiful graphic uh, things that were very much of the period. And I actually, I can remember when my father passed away, his whole record collection was, of course, part of the things that we had to do something with, and nobody had enough space to hold on to them. And at one point, I actually harbored this desire to get rid of the records and keep the covers because the covers were, again, these magnificent graphic uh, efforts done by, you know, who knows how many different kinds of artists. And it reminded me, too, of when I was doing research on... um, uh, a couple of different films, uh, Wall Street 2 most recently, and also uh, Confessions of a Shopaholic, looking at the old covers of things like Fortune magazine. Uh, because, again, there was an effort there to bring you into a world that was a lot more, I, I guess, abstract mm. in a way. I mean, there were a lot of abstract covers. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at them, uh, and I can't remember the names of the of the covers, mm-hmm. or I can't remember even the names of the artists, but I was as happy looking at the covers as I was in listening to the music, and they went hand in hand. That's the point. And, and so, when I actually, when I started doing Revolutionary Road, one of the interesting things that came out in, in, in my uh, research and also in what we wound up putting into the film was um, all of these old record albums. Somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me, my lover stands on golden sands and watches the ships that go sail. Beyond the sea, she's there watching for me. If I could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms I'd go sailing. It's far beyond the star, it's near beyond the moon. I know. We'll kiss just as before Happy we'll be beyond the sea And never again I'll go sailing And I was combing, you know, a lot of the flea markets looking for exactly these kind of covers because mm. A, I remember them, B, it was perfect for the period. And yeah, the covers that you see nowadays, well, actually, I love covers. I love record covers. I do. And it's a shame when you don't have records and you only have this tiny little CD that you have and that's all you can show for, for your efforts. And so the whole art form of record covers has pretty much disappeared, although Mm. I know there are people who like to uh, listen to records still, but it's nowhere near the same kind of uh, volume of sales, so I don't think they spend as much time or effort on them. So many people say to me, and I've had other jazz musicians tell me this, that they will come to them after a concert and say, I hate jazz, but I love you. And this is a constant refrain that we get. 
and we've discussed it, what do people really mean by it, and have come to the conclusion that they don't realize that jazz is this broad range of things that you can listen to, or maybe they've heard one thing in jazz that they hate, but specifically with you, a person who sets moods and tones, I'm fascinated by how often people will say comments sort of as an aside, oh, well, jazz isn't popular to a broad audience, or it's it's too intellectual, or it's too dissonant, or whatever they say that they think they don't like. But when a movie or a commercial or something wants to seem sophisticated or fun or people are having, they invariably seem to be playing jazz. It brings up to mind what you're talking about with the martinis and... So what is where is that disconnect? That's fascinating to me. That people associate good things sort of subconsciously with it. It's fascinating. I'm just putting it out there. I don't even yeah. know if there's an answer to it. I'm it's it's curious. I think well, I think jazz can uh seem anyway more cerebral. Mm. Um and I think that there is a certain kind of jazz where it's not as much about moving is it is about listening and it's about sitting and actually absorbing the music as opposed to moving to it. Mm. Um, and I think that the, uh, I mean, I can remember in high school going, I think it was even New Year's Eve once, uh, going to a, a Lincoln Center concert and it was called Titans of the Tenor Sax. And I went with a friend of mine and I remember sitting there and just being blown away Mm -hmm. because it was clearly not about, although we were bouncing around in our seats, but it was about an appreciation that went way beyond um, uh, a simple rock beat or uh, a kind of standard, you know, uh, rock and roll kind of thing. Um, although I, I tend to go towards rock if I like, you know, I like rock. I like, in fact, I like all kinds of music, Mm -hmm. but if I go into, uh, I, I really enjoy, uh, sitting and listening to something that's slightly dissonant, slightly, you know, challenging. It's like, it has to have a, a kind of, uh, challenge for me to really appreciate it because then I can go with it and then I can follow it and it, and it's, uh, usually, uh, some of it can be very strident, um, and but it's it's always an experience that I have that's a much more um, profound one in mm. a way than I do. Although you know, I I mean Pat Metheny, I love Pat Metheny. Now is he a jazz musician or is I he think a, of him as a jazz musician. Right. And a lot of people think of him as rock. As, right, you that's know? true. I mean, there are people Radiohead. You know, what's Radiohead? You know, um, so you you get into these worlds of like trying to put a line up you know between rock and jazz and mm. and I think it's sometimes it can be very confusing mm-hmm. um but I can remember like waiting for the <laughs> for when I was in I went to high school of music and art and I actually was in uh, in the music division uh I was a voice major I can't sing now unfortunately but yeah um, I can sing, but I mean, I don't sing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're just saying that because you're afraid I'm going to ask no, you to sing. Yes, please don't ask me to sing, whatever you do. It is only uh, in the bathroom. Um, but um, I remember I used to wait for the A train uh, at 14th Street and 8th Avenue, and I'd get on and get off at 135th Street because those days music and art was up on, by City College. 
and there was a beat that would come out of the A train. And you'd sit there or stand there, usually stand there because it was always very crowded. And every time it pulled into a station, it would stop and the cars would open and there'd be this that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And I was going, oh my God, why isn't anyone making a song out of this? <laughs> That's perfect. That's great. You know? And, you know, then I listened to the A train. I listened to the music, you know, of, of uh, you know, Ellington, the, right? Ellington, yeah. And I think, no, that's not it. <laughs> that's not right. That's, you know, funny. even though I loved it, I loved the A train song, but, but so. you were, you were directing even then. <laughs> <laughs> Ellington, you have it wrong. I like this. I like this a lot. <laughs> I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with movie director and production designer Christy Zia. I think I know the difference between production design and art direction, but you've done so many of these different things, and there's a lot of overlap and all of that. So if you can clarify that a bit, rather than me making a feeble attempt at saying what I think it is, go ahead. Um... There's a very fundamental difference, I think, uh, between production design and art direction, although the, the actual name production design uh, has only recently, I guess in the last, uh, well, 20 years maybe, which I guess is recent, but um, has become the word. Um, art direction used to be everything to do with the visual um, visuals of, the, of a film. 
Um, but over the last 20 years, um, production design has become the, the name. And the reason I think for that, or the reason why I, I draw the line between art direction and production design is that production design involves the entire production. Um, and I started in this industry, uh, as a costume designer. And so I did many films in the, in the seventies that were costume design. Uh, film. I, I designed the costumes, and then I moved from costume design into production design. And but I always held uh, a very. I thought it was incredibly important to have uh, a good relationship with the costume designer, even if I didn't design the costumes. And so I was always in uh, all those worlds. I was in the costume design world. I was in makeup, hair, props, locations. Um, and and that is really the difference. The difference is that an art director, uh, currently, what the art director does is he or she is in charge of the execution of the ideas of the production designer. So drafting, budgeting, um, uh, coordinating, uh, scheduling, it's all done, obviously, with my input, but that is the art director's job. And assistant art directors work for the art director, but ultimately everybody, uh, I guess the buck stops with production design. Mm. And the production designer usually um, is involved or should be involved, I think, with not just the sets and the props and the locations and all the special effects and all the other things, but has to has to incorporate and has to be uh, collaborating with the costume designer and makeup and hair because it's all of a piece. Mm. Do you talk much to the actors about that? That's a, another thing that's interesting. I'm sure that it depends on the actor. But if you're talking to the actor, I'm thinking specifically about some of these, uh, either a period movie or or something like Silence of the Lambs, something that has a really distinctive feel. I guess every movie has a distinctive feel, but you know what I mean by this. Do you talk to the actors in terms of what they're thinking about the character? Oh, absolutely. I think if you don't talk to the actors about about how they're feeling, then you're not getting a, a, a vital uh, component of the whole design process. I mean, I think that it goes, but it's a two-way street. There may be things that an actor may or may not have thought of already. Um, and sometimes if you show them what you're planning, uh, that gives them an opportunity to suddenly say, okay, now I get it. Now I know what I'm doing. You know, here's where you're going to live. Mm. Here's the kind of car you've got. Here's the kind of watch you're going to wear. Here's the kind of suitcase you're going to walk down the street with. Um, and then, of course, incorporating into that, here are the clothes you're going to put on. Um, that that gives an actor, uh, it helps the actor figure out what they're, what they're supposed to mm, be playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I like to do, but I have to always, always ask the director first, is to show the actor what they're going to be um, living in or where they're going to be living, rather. Um, because what you don't want to have happen is that the, that the actor says, no, 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 I didn't think that at all. That's no. not what I want. You know, and suddenly. That's what I was thinking. Suddenly the whole thing derails. But, um, ideally, and for the most part in my experience, they're very grateful, mm. uh, to be included in the conversation and it inevitably gives them 
a chance to to really gather uh, more information about what kind of character they're playing. I would think it'd be different from director to director too, because some directors would have. I'm guessing. I'm, I'm making this up, but it seems that some directors would really would already have a vision of what they think this is going to look like in terms of mood and all of that and would give you very specific directions and others might not, or is that not true? There's a complete, complete cross-section of different types of director uh, involvement in terms of the visuals. Uh, I have been very fortunate because most of the people that I've worked with... Um, they may have an inkling of an idea, but they really do look to me for, um, you know, an overall idea, uh, ex- you know, explaining to them exactly the kinds of things that we're going to do. And then they can feed off that. Someone like Jonathan Demme, you mentioned Silence of the Lambs. Um, he was completely open and wanting as much input as I could give him. Um, just because that's the kind of director he is. I mean, he goes as far as to walk onto a set and say, okay, now, how do you see us shooting here? Mm. Which is absolutely extraordinary and such a blessing because any production design person will have to think about how something is being shot but in order to design it, in order to think that it's the right location. So they already have in their heads what they think and how they think this this film should be shot inside of a given space. So when a director looks to you and says, how would you do this? Um, it's, it's a remarkable uh, opportunity to give the director all of your thoughts down to the, you know, they walk in here, you shoot them from this angle, then you turn around and shoot them this way, then they go... And, you know, and then he can, he or she, the director can then take all of the information that I've given and add it to his own and then come up with a shot list and all the things that they need to do to complete the scene. Um, then there's someone like Martin Scorsese who um, is, in, is in, in amazing because he visualizes the entire film in his head. He was an editor. So he also knows exactly the shots that he's going to shoot. And he comes up with a shot. He has uh, storyboards. Mm. And he will go in and absolutely insist that a certain scene be shot in a certain way. And if the location does not um, give him that, mm. then the location is not usable. Mm. And so that that puts another spin on how you find the locations or how you build the sets because you have to incorporate pre-existing ideas that he has in his head about how the film needs to be shot. Mm-hmm. So it's a different way of, of, of uh, working. And in every case, there's no right way. It's right. just, it's, it's, it's a, a collaborative effort. It's a collaborative effort. And so you wind up accommodating those needs. Um, Sam Mendes in Revolutionary Road, um, had wonderful research that he had done uh, with his researchers, black and white photographs from the period. Um, And so he had those and he'd say, this is the feeling I like.
Route 12 from the soundtrack of the film Revolutionary Road, for which my guest, Christy Zia, received an Academy Award nomination for Art Direction. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Jazz Times, your resource for all things jazz. Visit them at jazztimes.com. Additional support is provided by Robert's Restaurant in Watermill, New York, and the New Paradise Cafe in Sag Harbor, New York. Visit opentable.com for more information. For a discography of the music played on our show and a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about my CDs, performance schedule, and to follow me on Twitter and Facebook, and to sign up for our email newsletter, visit judycarmichael.com. My guest, art director and production designer Christy Zia, enjoyed the freedom she had when she worked with director Sam Mendes on his film, Revolutionary Road. Sam Mendes, when we met for the first time, actually it was even my interview, Sam had a whole bunch of really nice, uh, beautiful uh, black and white photographs that his research person had put together of things that he thought were emblematic of the period. And that was enough of a key for me to understand where he was going, what he was thinking about visually. And I was able to take those photographs as well as find additional ones that um, that had more, actually that were in more in color, um, to be able to set the tone of the, the whole film, whether it was composition or the quality of the, the, the look of the people or the colors that were used. There's a photographer named Saul Leiter who had a fantastic series of, of pictures from that time uh, in color that uh, was instantaneous. Uh, oh, this is exactly the color feeling we want for our film. Um, and and so you pull from whatever sources you can, and and typically, uh, it's a period of time in the in the whole filmmaking process that's very exciting, because uh, you're you're on a on a hunt. Um, you you may or may not have something in your head already, uh, or it may just come to you as you're flipping through books. Um, I go to the Strand Bookstore a lot. 
And uh, I will find in the strangest places something that inspires me. Um, and I think to myself, well, that's exactly what we need. Mm. And in the case of Silence of the Lambs, um, it went as far as to go... Um, again, into the world of, of art, because that's sort of the, the kind of kicking off place, either photography or, or, or art. And in, in uh, Silence of the Lambs, uh, we were very, uh, I was very affected by the, the paintings of Francis Bacon. And I've always thought of him as an amazing, just an amazing uh, painter. Um, and his whole series with the Pope sitting in, in this chair, with the cage around him. Um, that was something that was a definite inspiration for the cage uh, that we were going to do for um, Hannibal Lecter. So it comes in a lot of different ways mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily specifically, uh, you just don't really know where you're going to find mm. it. You just find, you find yourself gravitating towards magazine covers, book covers, record covers. It all comes, it's, it's all part of a piece. We've been talking about the visuals that inspire you and, and various sources for that. But you had mentioned to me earlier that you were listening to some Charlie Parker and that inspired you in a certain direction. Talk about that, because that's a very specific kind of music with a very specific kind of energy and mood. Yeah. So how did you use that? This was um, actually as a result of being asked to work on a, um, a film. It was a 30-minute film for HBO. It was part of a series called Women and Men 2. Uh, Jonathan Demme had been asked uh, originally to do the to do the piece, and he decided to produce uh, something rather than direct. And he asked me if I would direct, which was an incredible opportunity. Um, and so this was a Carson McCullers short story, and it was written. It was called Domestic Dilemma. Uh, we hired uh, Andy McDowell and Ray Liotta to play the key roles, and. It was, again, the same kind of period um, as Revolutionary Road. And I can't remember why, but I think I was probably listening to um, 88.3, one of those mornings, um, and they were playing Charlie Parker. Mm. And I listened to this music, and I just started thinking, oh, wow, this is, this is my film. Um, and it may be because it brought up sort of this visceral thing about when I was young and my parents listened to Charlie Parker as well. Um, and this again was one of these stories about, um, a young family living in the suburbs. Um, and the husband worked in the city every day and the wife was home with the kids and she was, um, she was a growing, flourishing alcoholic, which was also something that wasn't dealt with uh, in those days. And um, maybe I just put all of these pieces together because my parents used to have these, you know, cocktail parties and they'd play this music. And then here I am doing a movie about a family that's having problems with alcohol. And suddenly this music just kind of flowed into my mm. head. 
that the issue came down to HBO wanting to own the rights mm, mm-hmm. uh, to the music or didn't want to pay for the music rights. I don't know what that all was because at the time I wasn't sort of worrying about that. I was just getting inspiration. Um, but And we found a young composer um, who, who could write beautiful music of his own but that had, that had the, the feeling of Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker, and um, and it was perfect for the film. Mm. It it um, it it's very um, it's 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 very introspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not upbeat, you know. It you know, and 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 it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. Mm. Um, and I I think now back on it that I probably was just sort of channeling the the this youth time of mine and I'm you know and it came out in this very very sort of profound way but the music was so important when I was cutting the piece um and and I found myself and so we put in Charlie Parker and then afterwards we would have to take Charlie Parker out (laughs) put put in this other music and I was like no it's not quite right yet no 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 Uh. but um we we had and and ultimately i think what we did get was really good but it was it was definitely inspired by by the charlie, by Parker. charlie. more recently much more recently i'm actually now working on a documentary about the life and work of elizabeth murray uh who is a modern painter who has unfortunately passed away uh but again um she would listen to Thelonious Monk amongst other, you know, Miles Davis. Um, but she had a great handle on jazz when she was painting. And so in my, in, in the course of my, uh, putting actually a memorial piece together for the Museum of Modern Art and then subsequently now putting together this hour long documentary about her life, um, found myself going to some of the music that she used for her painting and there's a Thelonious Monk piece that I have in the beginning of the film that is perfect.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with production designer and director Christy Zia. What did you hear that sort of in a mood way made Monk write for this, besides the fact that she listened to it? Was there something about the mood that he presented or anything that stood out to you? The Absolutely. The mood of this Thelonious Monk piece. I mean, one of the things that um, I've been uh, using in, in the storyline of the documentary is the fact that while the world swirled around Elizabeth, all Elizabeth really did was paint. Mm. Um she was not that interested in the feminist movement. Uh, she didn't really uh, cater to the idea that she was part of one school of painting or another. Um, she was, if anything, her own uh, school of, mu- of, of painting. Um, and she basically turned her back on um, any efforts basically by anyone to categorize her as one form of painter or another. Um, and the music that we chose for the piece was um, this wonderful kind of, I don't care about you, but this is what I'm going to do <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> well, that's very Monk. Yeah, very Monk. <laughs> and very, you know, you would think sort of, blithely uninterested in anything other than just putting it down and um and then as a re- and it but it has a, a great upbeat to it and so uh and it's part of the credit sequence um and it's the kind of thing where um you know drawers are being opened and shut and things like that and his music just absolutely says it you know it's like the hell with you <laughs> I'm I'm just gonna do my own thing, uh, and uh, and and here's what it sounds like. As you're talking, and I get to see you, and you have the most beautiful smile in the world. <laughs> as you're talking about these things, and you're excited, and you're looking off, and you're thinking about the things you've created. One of the benefits of my being able to do the show is I talk to all these creative people, and they get me all revved up and inspired. But in particular, I'm listening to you talk about your process. And I'm thinking how often we were all too busy in this day and age. Everybody's thinking, 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 I have to do that, I have to do that. And you were talking a lot about just going with with a feeling, with a thought, letting these things stimulate these other thoughts, looking at pictures and having that take you somewhere you're not even expecting. It's a wonderful gift that, I won't even say it's a gift, but the artistic life is something that we pursue things like that. And I think the great artists go with that. They're not trying to crush an idea and think, I've got this, and certainly deadlines can do that to you. And we both know that that's the opposite of being inspired. But you articulate that so beautifully that... I'm bringing it up now because I'm hoping even our listeners are thinking of the importance of daydreaming Mm -hmm. and doing that. And certainly you're working hard and you have a goal and it's not sitting around. But there's a difference in doing nothing, truly, quote, nothing and letting your mind not be creative, doing nothing in a bad way, I guess, and imagining and stimulating creativity. Do you know what I'm talking about? I sort yes. of went off on my own little thing there, but well, it it, it amounts to immersion. 
um, in whatever the culture is that you're uh, getting involved with, and particularly in a case of production design, um, it is it's all encompassing and getting the right uh, tone to something as well as um, the right details can can come from a, a variety of places. And so um, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense for a visual person, uh, such as myself to be um, necessarily occupying my thoughts with listening to music because it's another part of the brain, let's say. Um, I think that it, it it helps to inspire. And if you, I mean, I'm actually working on another uh, project as well. It's a different world of than jazz uh, necessarily, but um, a project that that may or may never may or may not ever come to light, but it's about the Appalachian people of mm. of, um, of uh, Cincinnati uh, and listening to their music mm. and what their music says. Um, I mean, Scorsese is one I think, and Demi both uh, of the directors that I've worked with. Certainly, um, music is vital to their whole process. Um, they're listening to music way up front when they're um when they're they're making their decisions um when i worked with scorsese on goodfellas i mean he already knew the music that he was going to use uh in that film way before and he just picked it and he cut to it and of course he had all the money that he had so he was able to spend a good amount of that on music rights um but there's no question in my mind that that he is absolutely tied to music mm. when he's creating, and Demi as well. I think Jonathan has. Uh, there's no question that he takes music uh, very very seriously and thinks about it way up front as mm. well when he's completing, uh, you know, his films because. It's just a, a absolutely vital part of the process. And as you're saying it, I'm thinking of of the presence and awareness and of that, of not using music as a way to space out. I don't know how else to say it. A lot of people do that, and they're not thinking about it. They're actually being swept up in this in a conscious way, and it's, it's a hard thing to define because because it's not thinking about it, thinking about it, but also not being afraid to go where it takes you, which I think earlier we were talking about jazz, that some people are afraid of jazz. And I've had people say that to me. I actually hilariously had some man come up to me after a concert, and he said, that tune you played, I played something with lots of space, and it was so it made people nervous a little bit. And he said, I really felt that you were you were messing with me. He said, and at first I I I didn't like it, but than I did. <laughs> and it was so cute because he'd gotten swept away and he was conscious of the fact that he was uncomfortable. And as you're saying it, I think it's really a wonderful encouragement to people that might not do this to think if you get a little uncomfortable, like you said, you like music that does challenge you. Absolutely. In fact, um, I'm just thinking here as, as I'm talking to you about this, and I know that um, someone like Meredith Monk, um, who, I mean, again, you don't know quite how to categorize her music and where, where it fits into the world of jazz or whatever. 
Um, but she's somebody who I'm going to be talking to very specifically about the Elizabeth Murray piece because she also embodies that I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And you're going to either like it or not, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to do it. And there's an essence there of, um, of, of being able to stand out in a field by yourself and not be afraid and also take the necessary risks because otherwise you're not doing anything that's really authentic. You've been directing as well. Can you direct and not be the production designer? <laughs> no. <laughs> I suspected as no. much. No, well, actually, I think uh, production design is the next best thing to directing. Um, because, uh, and I say, and, and I'm not sure which is better, to be honest. I don't know if it's better to direct or better to production design. I think directing, uh, you know, talk about where the buck stops, um, it stops there, you know, uh, which can be uh, exciting or terrifying. Um, and all the decisions that are made are made uh, with the overall uh, thought of what is the piece about and what are you trying to say. Production design is a piece of that piece. And um, sometimes it's better to just have fun setting the tone and creating the world of as opposed to now what? What am I going to do with this world? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I enjoy most above and beyond actually physically designing a film is creating the story. And I actually think that production design and the difference between production design and something like interior decorating or architecture is that production design is involved in telling story. It is completely at the mercy of the script and of the story. So in a sense, the production designer is supporting the story. Whereas with interior decorating or interior design or architecture, there are other forces at play. Um, and in directing, uh, you're actually taking a story and you're forming it. And one of the most enjoyable things that I find is sitting down with the writer and actually putting the story together. And that's taken me into a whole other direction, which is producing, which I have now done specifically on a film that's um, going to be coming out in, in April. And I'm actually working on two other projects right now in the same as vein producer. as producer because 
uh, with the possibility of directing it or not, but the idea of sitting down with a writer and just coming up with a great story. And Ron Nicewanner and I worked together on Philadelphia in that capacity, not as me as a director or a producer, but as the designer, because I found myself wanting to sit with him and talk about these characters. Mm. And in doing so, pulling out of that um, key uh, thoughts and ideas that the writer had, uh, that I would then take into the visual world. Because sometimes you don't want to just say it. Sometimes you want to see it. Sometimes it's better to see it than to say it and let the audience put the, you know, connect the dots. And that's often the problem uh, that writers have, which is that they are, they're, they're wanting to say They're it. word people. They're word people or they're description people. And they want to write it down. And sometimes you can say it with just, you know, a piece of furniture mm. or a prop. It is film after all. Right, right. <laughs> so w- what the director can do, if they're able to, is to decide between what has to be written, mm. what can be visual, um, what can be in the music, what can be in the, how it's shot, the point of view of the camera, all of that, and, um, and somehow or other put that salad together so that it makes sense. And that, that's exciting because it's then the choice of the director to decide, okay, this is going to be about the music, this is going to be about uh, the visuals, this is going to be about the relationship between the people, and, and, and you have to hold all of that in your head and decide which makes the most sense. And it's a completely re- visceral response. I mean, in the times that I've directed, um, I, I, it's almost been, I've been guided by whether it's a, um, you know, a necessary storytelling point, or if I can do it visually, or if I'm going to put a piece of music there, which I think is going to take the whole thing to a, a, another level. Um, and it's about feeling that the weight of all of those elements and deciding which is the most important. Mm-hmm. And that's what directing is. Love is just around the corner Any cozy little corner Love is just around the corner And I'm around you I'm a sentimental mourner And I couldn't be forlorner Love is just around the corner when I'm around you, Venus de Milo was noted for her charms. But strictly between us, you're cuter than Venus, and what's more, you've got arms. Let's go cuddle in a corner, in a cozy little corner. Love is just around the corner when I'm around you. So, do you still put on music and run around the room? <laughs> <laughs> That's yes, what I, I want to know. You do. Good. So you <laughs> sing in the shower. That is the best sounding place. It's good to know that with all meeting all these people and I just see these I get the, the chance to ask people these questions. <laughs> and you do. You still put on the music and run around the room. I do. 
That's fantastic. I do, I do, I do, I do. And it, it's very interesting because I'll pick something and I'll start just by listening to it and then suddenly I'm just moving. So it can be, yeah. I think it's great. <laughs> well, no, you've inspired me because I have to admit that that I do, I don't run around in circle eights somewhat like you, <laughs> but I do have a cat who likes to dance. And right. I think if anybody saw us, I pick him up if something comes on. And he's huge. He's 21 pounds. So I put him over my shoulder and his tail, I hold out like it's an arm, (laughs) if you know what I mean. So I do that too. So we can leave people with this image of two crazy women (laughs) who run around with the music. I am so glad we were able to do this, Christy. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. You've been listening to director, production designer, and art director, Christy Zia. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Hydoff. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired from iTunes or at TalkShoe.com. Our opening music was our mail special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with my Cashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. Special thanks to NOLA Recording Studios in New York City and our webmaster, Megan Lewis. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway & Sons and Sag Harbor Florists. Visit sagharborflorist.net. Additional support is provided by the American Hotel in Sag Harbor, New York. Learn more at theamericanhotel.com. Support is also provided by East Hampton Indoor Tennis, eight indoor and 20 outdoor courts in a quiet, beautiful park-like setting. Visit ehit.ws for more information. And the I Love Jazz Classic Jazz Festival in Brazil featuring great musicians from around the world, myself included. The festival takes place in Rio, Sao Paulo, Belo Horizonte, and Brasilia. Visit ilovejazz.com.br for more information.